those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news. May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're living through challenging times, but I'm sure I'm not alone in hoping that some of the changes we've seen over the past year have actually been for the better. I had a lovely chat this week with somebody who's been part of our congregation for many years, but over the last few years, she's not actually been able to worship at church because um, of her illness. And she says that over the last year, because of Zoom, she's been more involved in the life of this church than she ever has for some time. It's not just what the digital revolution has helped us to achieve, but there's still flights of fancy in fashion pages, but I've noticed that they've become more approachable too. I, I can sit there and actually think I might buy some of the things. The rough edges to some of our news broadcasts um, have made, also made me feel like I've got a little bit more in common with the, uh, the famous, the rich, and the politicians, as you see them zoom from a badly lit room with a broom to hold the door from opening in the middle of their interview. We appear to be living less on the surface than we were, even though we appear so often on screens. And you too may feel that's a welcome change. But some things haven't changed at all. In fact, they might even have seemed to become worse. Social media remains a pretty toxic environment with people making as free as they ever were with their carping comments and criticisms of others. I was struck by how the relatives of Sir Tom had to hide the venomous outpouring against him and his family following their glad acceptance of the gift of a holiday of a lifetime. With such a toxic backdrop, the words spoken over Jesus at his baptism stand out starkly. You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. There's God, well pleased in his son, at the point when he has done absolutely nothing. Nada. Zip. What's fascinating is that these same words are part of something much bigger. Something that was not only the key to Jesus' fruitfulness, but also our own, if we would only stop to listen to them. I've learnt recently about a thing called the circle of grace. It was developed by a man called Trevor Hudson, and he based it on the work of a psychiatrist called Frank Lake. 
Frank Link worked with missionaries who'd gone out to India full of enthusiasm, but who quickly returned disillusioned and burnt out. You would think that given the similarities of life in India with the time of Jesus, that their workplace wasn't so different. So why was it that they burnt out, whereas Jesus, in the same kind of setting, appeared to survive and thrive? The Gospels show us a fully human Jesus, a Jesus who got tired and hungry and thirsty, and he needed to snatch 40 winks in a boat in a storm on the way to the next appointment with another few thousands of people. But there's no signs in the gospel that Jesus was ever cynical or close to burnout. He got tired, but he never got fed up. And so by looking at the way that Jesus modeled his life, Frank Lake started to see a kind of pattern to Jesus' life. And it was a process and a pattern that started with acceptance. Jesus' life was rooted from the very beginning in that sense of acceptance. Not just by his heavenly father, but you can see that he accepted himself as well. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. And again at the transfiguration, and again as he goes to the cross, those words appear. Jesus was not only accepted by his father, but he also accepted himself, even when surrounded by people who were rejecting him. Second, even though he got tired and hungry and thirsty, Jesus also knew how to recharge his batteries. If you look at his life, you see that while his life was challenging, he sought out and found sustenance. It's tempting to think that his rising early in the morning was just yet more things that drained him. But in fact, it was clear that this was such a source of life to him that the disciples asked him how to pray. But you also see Jesus at meals with friends, living in community with others, enjoying and noticing the things of creation, spending time alone, and also appropriate snoozing. So his life started from acceptance, and this led him to ensure that he gained the sustenance that he needed. Now, the third part of the cycle that Frank Lake noticed was called significance. Jesus lived with a, proud, a, a profound sense of his own significance. So even before he got to do anything, grace was flowing through him just by nature of his very being. If you think of the I am sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, etc. These statements demonstrate that Jesus lived out of a profound sense of who he was, what his real vocation was. His whole life was a sign and his very presence was a source of grace for people. So that's the third stage, significance. And the final stage, is fruitfulness. Jesus' ministry was obviously fruitful. The sick were healed, the dead were raised, the hungry were fed. He formed a team, created community, and saw their ministry bear fruit together. 
Now, all that's fairly easy to understand. When, when I present it that way, it should make sense. But actually, the real insight that comes that we can apply to our own lives comes when we actually turn it all upside down. When we look at those burnt out and disillusioned missionaries, we find that the reason they were burnt out and disillusioned was because they had reversed this cycle. They, like so many of us, started with achievement. But they were really up against it in a culture they didn't understand very well, they didn't speak the language, they didn't see any achievement. Achievement in those settings tends to happen after many years. So the very basis for their feeling any sense of acceptance started with the thing that they couldn't get, which was achievement. So they felt insignificant because they had not achieved. And this in turn meant that they didn't feel accepted or loved. Rather than a cycle of grace, this was then a, just a destructive cycle of works. And of course, that wasn't just then, it's also now. The cycle of grace helped me to see the difference between how I felt about my primary school and how I felt about my secondary school. I always felt there was something wrong with my secondary school but I couldn't pin down what it was. And I realize now that at primary school, I had always felt that I had value just for being there, just for who I was, because I was a child loved of God. It was a church primary school. Now, I mean, some teachers were more like that than others. I remember, still remember being terrified by one of them. But there was enough of that sense that just being alive was enough to make me accepted. It didn't mean that they didn't care about me doing well at school, but that wasn't the point. It worked completely the other way when I got to my secondary school, where results, as now for so many schools, were right at the top of the agenda. I only felt as valuable as the results that I was able to produce. We live too, it's not just in education, we live in a culture of performance review. We're in a cycle of works, the anti-cycle of grace. But reflecting on this model is actually so helpful for our own healing. And if we lift up this cycle to our own lives, it will help us to see if we're living in a cycle of grace or a cycle of works. Do we think that we'll only be accepted by God because of the good things that we do. Now, none of us, of course, are either 100% grace or 100% works. We may find ourselves living one way and then back again. But we can use the model to ask ourselves useful questions to reflect on our lives. For instance, am I living from a place of deep sustenance? Do I have a sense of significance not based on what I've done? All parts of the cycle are important. They just need to happen in the grace-filled direction rather than the works-filled direction. For instance, many of us struggle with a deep sense and lack of self-acceptance. 
and perhaps for most of us, we need to pay attention to that part of the cycle. Others will know what gives us life, what strengthens and sustains us, but then fail to make time for those things. Others of us have never considered who we might be, how each of us is already a sign of God's love before we actually do anything. We might be a sign of God's love because we're a good friend to others, because we're fun to talk with, because we notice the good that's going on around us and celebrate it. Then finally, we turn to what we're actually called to do, how we express God's love in the actions of our everyday life. Now, don't get me wrong, action is vital, but it shouldn't be the precursor for us being accepted and loved. So how do we make sure we move the right way around this cycle? Well, there are a number of ways reflecting on those parts of the cycle and how important they are and where we think we might be falling down is helpful. But another way is to do something that we're actually invited to do during Lent, to pay attention to our lives. There's a wonderful concept. It's a, another term, I'm afraid, that you may not have heard. Provenient grace. It's the idea that whatever is happening, God is always already at work in a situation. That's not to say we should somehow pretend to welcome the tough and harsh experiences of our lives as God's gifts. But it's simply that we need to be aware that God's always present and active, whatever we're facing. So we might want to ask ourselves, when did we last feel energized and alive? When were we surprised by a sense of awe and wonder? When were those experiences of beauty? When were the times when we felt loved? If we consider those moments, we can learn to trace the fingerprints of God's grace in our lives. And we don't have to have long memories. We can start with the last 24 hours. We could make this an activity that we do each night. We don't need to have God on one side of our life in the boxes marked church or Bible study group or, and then the rest of our human lives, work, school, home, in a secular box on the other. God's grace is far bigger than all that. And by seeking out those fingerprints of God in our experiences, we can start to glean a sense of his love and acceptance of us. That sense of, you are my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. And from there, to allow his grace to flow through us, to change us and this world for the better. <laughs>